them attraction, ill like a jack can peel your cat with a pump, you stuff at the wheel, horn blowing, skull torn, showing family more throwing dirt with a search for the killer still on gone. Attack your nigga, sneak up from the back and get you with raps, just snitch your throat like they wrote up a jack the ripper. My dough short with no thoughts, I let my flow scorch and burn your whole fort down to the ground like a blowtorch. This man will only fans killed in the landfill, make it stand still, get your head and hand drilled, damn real. I shame raps like I aim gas to the head, but said I make a lame can't bring back even remains in the dream trap. I'm a stalking horse, trauma like a tomahawk, eat him so bad you think it's down as far the way they find the corpse. From wild lands, they mind claims like the sun of high flames, they buy friends, tenant or their eyes drink. Drink is blowing the beat and flow, start reaching those deeps and shows making each before decompose. Thoughts of anger, those in my torture chamber, I abort with hang, hang. Brave men get bitch smacked, I click, clack, spit fat shit at your six pack, make your ribs crack and cave in. Yeah, this is person PFV verse for me, like murder in the first degree, disperse the fleet. Welcome to Ghost Nation. I am James Kent. That is Percy P. coming in hot with the track Tortured Chamber from Edan's 2005 album Beauty and the Beat. To be honest, I had a bit of a hard time finding a track that was appropriate for this episode. I wanted to find a song that could adequately represent what it feels like to be in a psychotic state where you're so overwhelmed with incoming stimulus and paranoia and anxiety that you have no idea what's going on and it just feels like you're in a terrorizing situation. If you've been listening to these last 10 episodes of Dose Nation, you know this is episode 9. And for this episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Usually I start with some kind of cold open and I talk about issues and big philosophical topics questions about the the value of psychedelic experience, where the psychedelic community is going, what the psychedelic movement means. But in this episode, I'm going to start with a story, um, not a nice story, a very grisly story, an appropriately themed story for this episode. And it would be wrong for me to say that this is one of my favorite stories in the history of psychedelic culture. Calling it my favorite story would be wrong because... I don't like anything about this story. In fact, this story, when I first heard about it, made me throw up my hands and ask myself, what the fuck am I even doing here in this psychedelic community? What the hell is going on? None of this makes sense. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Many of you have probably heard this story, and if you haven't, then forgive me for what you're about to hear, because this is genuinely awful. This story is from 2010, from Crescent City, California. I don't know how to accurately sum up this story, so I'm just going to read you the first two paragraphs from the news article I read when it came out in 2010. The headline reads, Mushroom Tea Murder. Man Removes Friends Still Beating Heart. Quote, After taking psychedelic mushrooms, a California man gouged out his MMA training partner's heart, eyes, and tongue, all while he was still alive. Witness testimonies detail the two men's increasing paranoia as it spiraled out of control. On March 21st, Jared Wyatt of Crescent City, California, killed his friend Taylor Powell after they had both drank mushroom tea. Powell was found without most of his face and a large incision in his chest. Wyatt told arresting officers that he had cut out Powell's heart 
and burned it because he thought Powell was possessed by the devil. Close quote. Okay, already this is not your standard psychedelic story. This is some weird, bizarre shit. So I'm going to continue reading from this article because I think there's some interesting details here. The article continues, quote, The rest is a hazy collection of bizarre, disjointed remembrances because all of the witnesses were hallucinating heavily. But it is possible to put together a coherent timeline. Wyatt... Powell, a third unnamed acquaintance, and Wyatt's ex-girlfriend all drank mushroom tea. Wyatt had been in a good mood before ingesting it, but the men's behavior changed almost immediately. Wyatt began complaining that his eyes were burning and tried to prevent the third man from leaving, even jumping on top of his car as he drove away. Wyatt told police he didn't want the man to leave because he was convinced a tidal wave was coming. Powell held him down on the kitchen floor, saying none of them could be saved from the wave, and that the world was going to come to an end. At one point, Wyatt yelled at Powell to get his guitar. Powell responded angrily, asking, You want to fucking die? Repeatedly. Wyatt told police that he had been tormented by spirits in the house, and that Satan was in that dude, Powell. Wyatt and Powell fought at point using a rear chokehold familiar from their MMA training together. The ex-girlfriend testified that Wyatt and Powell started wrestling on the kitchen floor, though they were later talking about surfing. Later on, she saw Powell standing over Wyatt, spitting on him, and heard sounds she thought were sexual in nature. Wyatt removed Powell's heart while he was still alive, according to the coroner's report. He then cooked his body parts in the stove because he was fearful Powell was still alive and needed to, quote, stop the devil. When police arrived, they found Wyatt standing over Powell, naked and covered in his blood. I killed him, Wyatt said, and asked if they were God coming to save him. Wyatt's attorney argued that his client had a psychotic break and was incapable of understanding what he was doing but a judge ruled yesterday that he must stand trialed, and he will be arraigned tomorrow. Close quote. That's an article from Deadspin by Barry Pacheski. I want to thank him for that article, because it is a nice summary of what happened there. Nice is probably the wrong word. It's a detailed summary of what happened that night. Now, of course, Wyatt had a psychotic break. Everybody at that party probably had a psychotic break. I don't know how much mushroom tea they drank, but obviously there is... It is possible for someone to drink too much mushroom tea. And who knows what the maximum safe dose of mushroom tea is. It's impossible to know how much psilocybin you're ingesting when you make tea out of mushrooms. You could easily take far too much. So regardless of the fact that they were all on mushrooms and Wyatt was having a psychotic break, he was sent to jail for 47 years to life with multiple counts of mayhem and homicide. This happened in 2010. Jared Wyatt, he is still in jail. He will probably be there for another 30 years. Now, I don't know much about Jared Wyatt. If you Google Jared Wyatt, a prisoner profile of him will come up as the fourth or fifth link down in Google. He has a profile on writeaprisoner.com, which was a service that connects pen pals with people in jail. So on his 
write a prisoner profile. Jared says, My name is Jared Wyatt. I'm a 34-year-old white male from Crescent City, California, and I'm looking to meet new friends. I spend most of my time playing guitar and soccer. I enjoy exercising, writing poems, songs, reading, hanging out, and being a dork with all the bad kids in the yard. When I was free, I would go hiking, fly fishing, surfing, free diving, and spear fishing. I like walking on the beach. I also worked on a fishing boat. I like music by Ed Sheeran, Bob Marley, Sublime, System of a Down, and Slipknot. My two closest loves are a butterball Labrador named Polar Bear and a black pit bull named Gator Butt. I hope to hear from you. Don't be shy. Just reply and be yourself. Take care. Okay, that's Jared Wyatt's personal profile. He seems like an average guy from Crescent City, California. In his prison profile photo, he looks pretty buff. He looks like he's been working out. He's tatted up. He's got a tattoo on his face. Um, you know, he looks like a pretty intimidating guy. But here's the thing, and this is the point of this story. Whatever you think of Jared Wyatt, there are many of you out there that could condemn Jared Wyatt for being an MMA wrestler or a meathead or, um, you know, a not very bright individual, someone who's into sublime system of a down and slipknot. There are many things that you could point to about Jared Wyatt and say, oh yeah, this person is typical aggro fuckboy, shouldn't be messing around with psychedelics, probably deserves to be in prison. You could find all ways to dump on this guy. And if you go through all the comments on the internet about this case, you'll see that there's not a lot of sympathy out there for Jared Wyatt. And this case leaves me with a lot of questions. I mean, the first one being, what is a group of MMA fighters doing, hanging out and recreating by drinking mushroom tea? What, where did the idea come from for them to take mushrooms? Was this something that their friends do? Was this just a normal thing that they do in Crescent City? Or was there something going on in the MMA community at the time where psychedelics were being seen as this new kind of performance drug that would allow people to improve themselves, like a spiritual steroid or a transpersonal steroid that, that, that turned your brain into something more enlightened and more efficient? I don't know. Where would they get that idea? I have some possible ideas, but, you know, I'll leave it to you to figure out where that idea came from. And here's the other thing that I find really perplexing about the whole thing. And that is that I am sure in my mind, I don't know Jared Wyatt, I don't know what was going on that day in his life, but I'm almost 100% positive that when this group of people sat down to drink mushroom tea together, Jared Wyatt was not intending to kill his training partner. He was not intending to cut anybody's heart out with garden shears. He was not intending to mutilate anybody. And I suspect, had Jared Wyatt not taken mushrooms that night, he probably would have lived his entire life with no criminal record, maybe, you know, maybe drunk and disorderly, maybe drunk driving, maybe assault or disorderly conduct. But I don't think he was a murderer. I don't think this guy was a psychopath. I don't think this guy is a sociopath. 
I don't think, despite the fact that he was an MMA wrestler, he was necessarily a violent guy. He was a tough guy. He was a macho guy. He was an aggro guy. Maybe he was taking some steroids or some performance-enhancing drugs. It's hard for me to say, but he's, you know, he fits the type. He's a very buff MMA-type guy. But my point is he's not a killer. He's not, at heart, a killer. And yet, when he took mushrooms and the paranoid psychotic break happened, and he and his friend started getting into it, a dynamic was exposed. Something opened up in his mind. He suddenly believed everyone was possessed by demons. Demons. And this is a story that I hear repeated over and over again from people who've had bad trips on mushrooms, on acid, in ayahuasca ceremonies. At some point during the paranoia, this weird religious archetypal shit starts popping out and this battle between good and evil exposes itself. And suddenly there are demons trying to control you and manipulate you. And it's at this point that your body literally kicks into fight or flight mode. Now, in one of the last episodes when I was talking about ayahuasca retreats, there was a horrible story about a man who got involved in a lethal knife, a lethal knife fight during an ayahuasca ceremony because he became paranoid and was afraid that other people in the room were trying to kill him or manipulate him like demons. I've heard back from multiple people saying that they had the same exact thing happen to them either at an ayahuasca ceremony where they were sure that the shaman or all the people running the retreat were witches or demons or some kind of magic users, evil magic users. I mean, what else is a shaman but a magic user? So I can see how this archetype can present itself in those ceremonies. But for Jared Wyatt that night, it became a life or death struggle. Not only did he need to kill his friend to kill the demon, he needed to cut the tongue and the heart out and put it in the stove and cook it and burn it to keep the demon from coming back. I have no idea where this came from. I don't know what movies he was watching or what, he, what literature he was reading, but this came to him, this idea that I need to take garden shears and, and cut this guy apart to keep the demon from whatever, killing me, taking me over. I don't know why they were both naked or... I should say I don't know why Jared Wyatt was naked. I don't know what condition his friend was in. But the police found him naked, covered in blood. As if he was performing some kind of ritual. And when the police showed up, Jared Wyatt assumed that they were God there to reward him and protect him and congratulate him for killing the demon. But of course that wasn't the case. It was actually Jared Wyatt who was the demon in this situation. However, he thought that he was the good guy in this situation. That's how turned around he was in his own head. It's fucked up. And not because he's an aggro, macho MMA fighter. It's because he was on a lot of mushrooms, 
and when he had a psychotic break, he didn't have any tools to deal with it, other than becoming aggro. So this story broke just as I was trying to get psychedelic information theory published. I self-published it for a variety of reasons. It took me a long time to get to a draft that I was comfortable with. I had been waiting maybe a couple of years to put it out, but, you know, I'm ADD, I get distracted, I wander away from things, and I have, a prob have problems finishing projects, as you can tell, from the length it takes me to put these final Dose Nation episodes out. But I can tell you for sure that the very last thing I wanted to see when I woke up that morning and went to my computer to look at the news about psychedelics was a story about a man cutting out his friend's heart while high on mushrooms. This is not the only story like this. Every generation there's a story like this about some grisly murder that happens on psychedelics, some strange behavior, somebody gouges their eyes out, somebody chews up their own tongue. Uh, there was a lot of bath salts horror stories going around about this time or a few years before. Somebody, you know, got their face eaten off by someone who was high on bath salts or K2 or something. But this story is maybe the worst example for me because these people went into this trip in a good mood, according to testimony. They were all in a good mood. They were looking to have a good time. And they believed that mushrooms were going to make them happy and give them a fun night, a fun, exciting night full of mushroom weirdness. And what happened was an event so horrible and so tragic that I'm sure it affects them all for the rest of their lives. Not particularly Taylor Powell, who is now dead, but also Jared Wyatt, who will be in prison for most of his life, if not the rest of his life. The ex-girlfriend, the other friend that got away. And I think about this story all the time. In fact, this story may be one of the reasons why I decided to do these final podcasts. And maybe in the back of my mind, I was thinking that I would save this story for the final episode, for the big reveal or whatever. But seeing this story on the horizon and me thinking about this story every once in a while has really kept me away from wanting to do these episodes because I'd never really wanted to come back to this story and come to grips with what's going on in this story. And there's a bunch of things going on in this story that give me conflict. Because every year or two, I will see a news headline published about how psilocybin mushrooms are the least dangerous psychoactive drug on the market. Psychedelic mushrooms are the least dangerous. That's what the headline says. And this is based on 911 calls, emergency room visits, overdoses, accidental deaths, etc., etc. And if you add all those things up, people on mushrooms wind up in the emergency room or wind up calling 911 far fewer than people on other drugs. People who use mushrooms recreationally, they don't get into as much trouble as people who take other drugs. They, you know, they get into accidents less frequently. It's not that they don't happen. It's just that it's reported much less than on other drugs like heroin or alcohol or even cannabis. 
people wind up in the emergency room on cannabis panic attacks and so on. So these reports come out, much to the delight of the psychedelic community. Magic mushrooms, least dangerous, safest form of recreational drug. And I think to myself, okay, mostly. Maybe at low to medium doses, you don't get a lot of problems with them. Maybe when people know the proper dose that they're taking, you don't get a lot of problems with them. But I will remind you that towards the end of the 90s and the beginning of the 80s, all the way up until recently, in the last few years, there was this trend called heroic dosing, where people like Terence McKenna would say, well, if you think two grams of dried mushrooms is trippy and great, try six grams and you will lose your mind or you'll disintegrate and reintegrate back in the galactic core or whatever they're promising. The higher the dose, the better the trip, the crazier the information. If you haven't done the heroic dose, you're missing out and you're just dabbling. You're just a dabbler. And there are still people out there who are proponents of high-dose experimentation. But if you'll notice, in the last few years, there's been this other trend that's been breaking through the media that I read about, I don't know, every couple months or so. This thing called microdosing, which is completely opposite from the heroic dose or macho dose theory going around. Or even the Timothy Leary model, which was, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out. Nowadays, instead of, you know, tuning in, turning out, and dropping out, or uh, taking a heroic dose and disintegrating your mind, now the cool trend is to just take a little bit of psychedelics and actually go to work. We don't want you to take psychedelics and go hiking, or go do something fun, or go camping with your friends or take a huge dose at some festival and blow your brains out with hallucinations and paranoid fantasies. No, we just want you to take a little tiny dose and still show up for work. Okay? Everybody on board with that? No more heroic dosing. No more massive doses as a macho attempt to prove that you can take it. We're going to rein that shit in now. And how we're going to rein that shit in now is by saying that people should be microdosing. They should be taking teeny, teeny, tiny doses. Just so you get a little tingle and a little weirdness. A little creativity going on in your brain. But not enough to make you lose your shit and kill somebody. Or wind up in the emergency room. And as I see all the progress being made about psychedelics and clinical therapy you're treating depression and anxiety and PTSD, I can't help but wonder where this message of microdosing is coming from. Because here's the thing, and this is what I keep wrapping my brain around with the psychedelic community. If your goal is to mainstream psychedelics, to mainstream them to the point where people could just take them every day and it's no big deal. Normal people can take them. You know, not just 
liberal, educated academics, professionals, artists, musicians, creative types, hippies, bohemians. That's been the realm of, of psychedelia for almost the entire 20th century. That's where psychedelia rested, was in this comfortable community, mostly liberal, mostly educated, mostly middle class, mostly white European people who had their own ideas about what psychedelics were supposed to be and how they fit into society. But now we're going to mainstream that shit so that, you know, everybody's taking it. Doctors, lawyers, nurses, police officers, construction workers, MMA fighters, people who guard our nuclear silos. And I don't know if you've seen that story, but that, that's also a great story to look into about all of the people guarding the United States nuclear arsenal tripping on acid all the time. I'm not going to get into that here, but you can look that article up. This is, you know, we're mainstreaming psychedelics now. You can have the people watching our nuclear missiles taking acid. That's fine. But that's the thing about mainstreaming psychedelics is that you give people the idea that it's okay to just be experimenting with these things because they're mostly harmless. They're mostly harmless. So you can see in light of the movement to mainstream psychedelics and make them safe for public consumption or at least safe for clinical consumption that cases like those of Jared Wyatt are not serving that cause very well. And the psychedelic community doesn't need crazy agrotypes flipping out and killing people while they're high on drugs. They don't need people taking a slight overdose and seeing demons everywhere and running into the street screaming that it's the end of the world, that there's a tidal wave coming. And yet these are exactly the kind of trips you have when you take high-dose mushrooms. Not everybody, not all the time, but you take a lot, you take enough high-dose mushroom trips you will freak out. You will have that panic attack. You will get paranoid. You will start seeing demons. You will start thinking that you're at the center of some archetypal conspiracy of good and evil. And you don't hear people in the psychedelic community talking about that. You hear about transcendence. You hear about transpersonal growth. You hear about epith epiphany and catharsis. You hear about expanding consciousness and empathy and new insights and perspectives. You hear about treating depression and our post-industrial ennui and, and finding a spiritual sense of self and centering ourselves within this crazy dynamic of reality. All kinds of fluffy bullshit. You hear it all. But you don't hear, oh yeah, and you might go insane and see demons. Right? You don't go to psychedelic conferences and hear people stand up at the podium and say, Oh yes, and by the way, in addition to all this interesting stuff you can do with psychedelics, it may also freak you out and cause a psychotic break and cause you to see demons that make you fear for your life, that push you into a primal fight-or-flight reflex where you no longer have any control about how your body responds. You don't hear them tell you that when that psychotic break hits, there's no one else inside your head to save you you are on your fucking own you did this to yourself 
Welcome to the Torture Chamber. Okay, so I've been in the torture chamber plenty of times on many different substances, and uh, every time I wind up in this space, I find myself asking, why did I do this? Sometimes I remember that this is exactly what I wanted, and I try to enjoy it and ride it out. And sometimes I think I can manipulate it or control it or move it towards something that's more positive and less terrifying and less confusing and disorienting, but that almost never works. Deep breathing exercises, changing the music, curling up in bed, meditating, all of the things you think of to try and bring down a problem trip, they usually don't work. Sometimes you can find someone to talk you down, but if you're with a bunch of other people who are also tripping, it just intensifies the insanity and the confusion. So not only have I been in the torture chamber, I've seen other people in the torture chamber. I have been tripping with friends or babysitting for a group of people where somebody enters the torture chamber and they lose it. I had one person literally describe to me how they were being ripped apart by demons in real time. And like these entities like crows or vultures were landing on them and, and picking apart the gristle of their body. And every time they closed their eyes, they would see these demonic clowns with sharp teeth smiling at them and gnashing at them. And they were just being eviscerated. Even though to me, they just looked like they were lying on the ground with their hands over their eyes, trying to explain what was going on. I've seen people go fetal and writhe around on the ground moaning in pain as if they're reliving their own birth. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. Completely unresponsive, tuned out to everything that's going on around them, but writhing in pain on the floor like they're trying to escape something that's strangling them. I've seen people become terrified and try to run away from the group where they had to be restrained or talked into staying because we couldn't let them run out into the open high on whatever it was having a panic attack. And of course, I've gotten multiple notes, emails, contacts on Twitter, etc. from people saying, yeah, this happened to me. I had a psychotic break where X, Y, and Z happened. Demons, insanity, anxiety, terror, demon possession, friends possessed by demons. And now, in the aftermath of all of that, I don't know what to think about it all. And here's the unusual thing. Even the people who admit to having the most terrifying torture chamber experiences, they tell me that they went back and tried it again, whether it was mushrooms or ayahuasca or LSD, whatever it was that gave them the bad trip. That bad trip wasn't enough to keep them from trying it again. <laughs> Can you imagine having a terrifying trip, 
where you believe your friends or the people that you're tripping with are <laughs> possessed by demons and are trying to kill you and you have some sort of violent outburst where you become terrified and you try to flee and you need to be talked down or you need to be restrained physically and people need to spend whatever it is, a half hour, 40 minutes, an hour trying to talk you down out of your crazy psychosis where everyone is just freaked out beyond the ability to cope. And the whole time you are in fear for your life and you have no idea what's going on or when it's going to end or maybe even who you are. You've forgotten everything. And then at the end of that trip, in the aftermath, you think to yourself, hey, maybe I'll try that again. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll try that again because that was really weird and I'm not exactly sure what happened to me. But maybe if I try it again, the next time things will be a little clearer and I'll be able to figure it out. Maybe I just did it wrong this time, and if I do it again, things will be fine. Now, I can understand this. I, I feel like maybe I identify with this. I've had many bad trips in the past, and I always came back for more. I always decided that, well, you know, maybe I'll try it again this way, or maybe I'll do this differently the other time. And one of the things consistently that people ask me when they write to me and talk about these experiences is they want to know, is it more or less likely that I'm going to have a psychotic break if I've already had a psychotic break in the past? And there seems to be this, this kind of instinctive thread of thinking that goes, oh, well, if you've already had a really mind-blowing psychotic break, then you'll be better prepared the next time to deal with that. Because now you know what it's like. And in the aftermath, you realized it was all just a trip. I recovered. So maybe the next time that I go into the torture chamber, I can have a little more presence of mind and realize that everything will be fine. And I won't freak out. And I won't have a psychotic break. <laughs> I find this question really interesting because the real answer is if you stop taking psychedelics, then the chances of you having a psychotic break drop to almost zero. If you want to improve your chances of having a psychotic break, go ahead and take that high dose of psychedelics, and you will probably have that psychotic break. I don't think there's any evidence that having a psychotic break on psychedelics makes you more prone to having psychosis or a psychotic break later in life, naturally. I don't think there's any evidence for that. I think there's some evidence that having a psychotic break on psychedelics can lead to some lasting delusions, mania, paranoia, and so on. But all of that stuff tends to go away after a couple days to a week, or maybe a couple weeks, depending on how powerful the experience was. But here's one piece of advice that I've learned from experience, and hopefully other people have learned, and... Um, you know, maybe figure out instinct instinctively if you do a lot of psychedelic experimentation. And that is this. No matter how bad it gets in the torture chamber, you can't freak out. That's the long and the short of it. I mean, that's the only answer that makes sense. People will try to tell you about intervention methods and protective methods and set and setting and so on. But the real answer is, no matter how bad it gets, 
don't freak out. And I think once you have an experience where you lose it on psychedelics and you freak out to the point where other people need to come to your assistance to keep you safe, maybe you learn that lesson. Maybe you learn the lesson that freaking out, even though it brings people to my aid, it also sends my panic out in a ripple that affects everybody around me. And whether or not the panic and fear I'm feeling inside of me is real, the panic and fear that I exert on the outside world when I freak out, that will be real. So calling 911, uh, running out into the street screaming that the end of the world is coming, um, going to the police, going to the emergency room, freaking out and causing yourself self-harm or trying to harm someone else, because of your fear of imminent danger. Those are all problems. Those are all, those are all natural reactions that people have to being in a panic situation, to being in a psychotic break. And I think in terms of psychedelic experimentation, everybody gets one of those. And I've talked to many people, and the majority of people I've talked to who have experimented with high-dose situations they have at least one experience where they freaked out. Maybe not violently or dramatically, but to the point where they needed to call someone to talk them down. Or they needed to, they needed to connect with somebody and say, help me, I've made a mistake and now I don't know what to do. I feel like everybody gets one of those. You get one. And before people start experimenting with psychedelics, it should be explained up front that you're allowed one emergency call. You're allowed to phone a friend. You're allowed to call for help to get out of this situation because we can't control every facet of the experience. Sometimes it goes bad. Sometimes you freak out. Sometimes you have a negative reaction. Sometimes you take slightly too much. Whatever it is, everyone makes mistakes. If you have a psychotic break and freak out, that's something that we can all forgive and we can get over. And there shouldn't really be any shame in that, because the first time it happens, there is no way to know really how to deal with it. But what if it happens again? What if it happens multiple times? And every time you take psychedelics, you wind up freaking out and becoming the person that's agitating everyone else around you because you're, you've lost it. Well, then it becomes a problem, not just for the people around you, but for you because you've developed this problematic relationship where psychedelics allow you to have a meltdown and force the people around you to deal with whatever crisis you're going through. And if that becomes routine, then that's a big problem. That's something that really needs to be looked into and dealt with. Now, I've watched people melt down and freak out in all sorts of ways, from major freakouts to very mild freakouts, where somebody says, I'm really uncomfortable with this, I don't like this anymore, I just want it to stop. How do we make it stop? And even those kind of reactions, they're filled with portent, like an omen of doom. I don't like this, I've got a bad feeling about this. I've been in enough trips with people where something like that happens that I just stopped tripping with other people altogether because I couldn't deal with it anymore. It became too much of an emotional burden for me potentially being the catalyst for someone else's psychotic break and torture chamber experience. Which means I needed to develop a protective strategy for dealing with freakouts in the future, if I was on my own. 
because if I was going to be tripping on my own and experimenting with high doses, I needed to have some kind of protocol to deal with psychotic breaks. And my protocol essentially became, when all else fails, just sit and be quiet. Just shut up. Just shut your mouth. Just sit and be quiet. And this may have come not from, you know, anybody who is teaching me to meditate, um, but maybe from something Terence McKenna said that, you know, Terence McKenna just famously never really took his own advice. <laughs> but he said that, you know, when you become crazy, when you start to think that you've gone crazy, the best thing you can do is just shut up about it. Just shut up. <laughs> the more passionate you feel about telling people the source of your insanity, the more they will look at you and perceive you as being crazy. But if you just shut up about it, you can think whatever crazy things you want. You can be in as much terror, as much existential horror as you can stand. But as long as you shut up about it, that stays contained to you. You don't project it onto other people and you don't call for other people to come save you. You, you keep that to yourself. So that became my coping strategy. You know, when things got out of hand, when I felt like I was in danger, be still, sit still, be quiet, just sit and listen and pay attention. And eventually the clues about who you are and what you're doing will come back to you. But that was a hard lesson to learn. And I'm not even saying that that's the best strategy in the world. I'm just saying that that's how I figured out how to cope with this problem. I've had other people say that, you know, maybe you can remind yourself that none of the things that you're seeing are real. But that's kind of a heavy lift, right? Trying to send a message to your future self to remind yourself about something that you took to fool yourself into believing that things that you're seeing are real and then you have to remind yourself that the things that you're seeing aren't real because your past self sent a reminder to your future self, etc., etc. It gets convoluted there when you're in the trip trying to figure out what's going on and remind yourself about what, what's real and what's not real. So I'll just tell a quick story. In 1996, the legendary LSD chemist Nicholas Sand was busted in Port Coquitlam, Canada, outside of Vancouver, for having an underground LSD lab that made, I don't know, millions of hits of acid in the, in the late 90s. Uh, the big, one of the biggest labs on the West Coast, run by Nicholas Sand and uh, a couple of uh, apprentices. Nicholas Sand had been a fugitive LSD chemist for 20 years before that, and we'll return to that later in this show. But in 1996, when he was busted, I went to Vancouver to visit him in the jail there, the Vancouver City Jail, and we talked about a lot of things, including LSD synthesis, what he'd been doing, how he wound up in Canada. Um, he wanted to know if there was any way that I could help bust him out of here, like the weather underground did for Tim Leary. I told him I didn't think that that was going to happen. But we had this conversation about what's real, what's the value in the experience, and, and why, he's, why he continued to do it. And he told me something interesting. And I don't know how this ties back to what, what we were just talking about, but I believe it does. He said that there was a point in his career in the early 70s where maybe he was already a fugitive from an earlier bust. And he was deciding what to do with his life. And he was thinking... Should I keep making LSD 
or should I go find something else to do with my life? You know, go straight or, or find another life where I can just leave this behind. And this was a big momentous decision for him, a decision that would shape the rest of his life. And he told me the way he decided to make that decision was to drop a tab of acid and meditate on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> the decision about whether or not to quit making acid rests on the answer that comes when you take a tab of acid and meditate on it. Well, big surprise. What do you think the acid told Nicholas Sand? The acid told Nicholas Sand that it was absolutely the most important thing in the world that he continue making acid and that this was what he was sent to Earth to do. This was what his life was about, was making acid. So the decision to continue making acid became crystal clear with an exclamation point while Nicholas Sand was high on acid that he made himself. Okay, so there's a little bit of a snake eating its own tail. Nicholas Sand makes a lot of acid, gets in trouble, has to figure out what he's going to do with the rest of his life, decides he's going to stop making acid, but then decides, well, maybe I'll just have one more trip to meditate on it. And that one more trip basically told him, you can't stop making acid, you need to keep doing this. Which is why he wound up in Canada with an assumed name, living as a fugitive with an underground chemistry lab where he was making LSD 20 years later. Now, in that very same conversation I had with Nicholas Sand, that very same conversation, it only lasted about 20 or 30 minutes, he told me expressly that he knew that the stuff that you saw in a psychedelic trip was not real. He didn't like that Terrence McKenna was talking about elves and spirits or, or Rick Strassman or whoever was, was, was floating that line back in the 90s. He was very much of the notion that, no, this is all you. This is all you tapping into a, a deeper part of yourself or a deeper spiritual nature of reality or, a, or, or some kind of deeper, truer, or richer aspect of reality. But the content of the hallucinations, the thing this, that you saw, those weren't technically real. And yet he himself admits to making decisions in his life based on ideas that came to him while high on acid. As if those ideas were real and do have value. So there's confusion there. Which is it? Are they real? Are they not real? Now, I actually had a debate about this with Julian Palmer, who wrote a book on ayahuasca and lectures on ayahuasca and psychedelics. I was on uh, James Gesso's Adventures Through the Mind podcast, and we had a, what he called the uh, Great Shamanic Debate. And you can Google that. It's James Kent, James Gesso, Julian Palmer, Great Shamanic Debate. And in this debate, Julian Palmer literally said... He believes that the things that people see on psychedelics may be real. And beyond that, he believes that people who are insane in the mental ward, in mental institutions, clinically insane, not from drugs, but just naturally, that those people may be seeing real things too. And that you need to take seriously the notion that these spirits exist and that mentally ill people may actually be seeing real things. 
because that's the shamanic model. And all of these traditional communities and tribal cultures around the world have followed this model for centuries, if not thousands of years. So who are we to come in now and say we know better and say that these, these things are false, that they're not real? And I hear it. I hear the debate from all sorts of people about whether or not spirits are real. And here is my problem with that. If spirits are real and the stuff that you see during your psychotic break is real, then what you're saying is that Jared Wyatt was correct to mutilate and kill his friend and cut out his heart when he saw that his friend was possessed by a demon. Your argument for the spiritual efficacy of hallucinogens legitimizes what Jared Wyatt did. Jared Wyatt was in the right when he cut out his friend's heart and cooked it in the oven. Jared Wyatt was a hero for killing that demon because what he saw in his psychotic break was true. And, you know, here's where the arguments come in. Oh, no, not everything you see is true. Only some things are true. Or, oh, this, the spirits can play tricks on you. And you don't have to react to everything a spirit shows you. And so on and so on. And I say, bullshit. You can't have it both ways. If you believe that people see real spirits and real things when they're hallucinating on psychedelics, if you believe all that shit is real, then you can applaud Jared Wyatt for mutilating and murdering his friend with garden shears when he realized that his friend was possessed by a demon. Because, to quote Jared Wyatt, Satan was in that dude. That's what Jared Wyatt truly believed he was seeing during that episode. Satan was in that dude, is what he told the police. And when he pulled the beating heart from his friend's chest, he needed to throw it in the oven and burn it because he had to, quote, stop the devil. Okay? Jared Wyatt is a fucking shaman. He's a shaman warrior who is carrying out a spiritual exorcism using garden shears because he believed he was seeing a real devil, actual Satan, demons in the house, actual Satan in his friend that needed to be killed. Satan was in that dude, he said. And at this point, I can't fucking take it anymore with these spiritual kooks who are trying to push this bullshit about some kind of spiritual awakening or a connection with spirits or a spirit community or a, or a deeper intelligence that comes when you take psychedelics. Because if that is your fucking line, and if that is the line that you are selling, then you agree that Jared Wyatt did the correct thing. And if you don't think Jared Wyatt did the correct thing, if you think that Jared Wyatt was not seeing the devil, 
and should not have mutilated and killed his friend, then shut the fuck up with your spirit shit. Because I've had it. So now I'd like to introduce you to a man named John Griggs, also known as Johnny Griggs to his friends. A lot of what I'm going to talk about here will sound mythical or legendary, and this story has many elements of a mythic or legendary tale. And I think that's because as influential as Johnny Griggs was in the early psychedelic movement, Johnny Griggs was not an educated man. He never wrote any books or wrote any articles or did any published interviews or recorded any lectures or appeared on camera talking about anything. So all the information we have about Johnny Griggs comes from third-person reporting from friends and family members that knew him at the time. Now, if you don't know the name Johnny Griggs, maybe you have heard of his group, Brotherhood of Eternal Love also known as the Hippie Mafia, which formed around Orange County and Laguna Beach around 1966 or so. If you don't know about the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, maybe you've heard about the chemist Nick Sand and the acid he made called Orange Sunshine, famously powerful acid called Orange Sunshine. Nick Sand and Tim Scully were the chemists, the LSD chemists for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And there is now a book and a documentary called Orange Sunshine, which documents the creation of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and the life of Johnny Griggs. Now, there would be no Brotherhood of Eternal Love without Johnny Griggs. And in fact, there may have never been Orange Sunshine or a Southern California hippie movement without Johnny Griggs. But Johnny Griggs was not always a hippie. In the early 1960s, Johnny Griggs was a juvenile delinquent and generally up to no good. He was a petty criminal, a dope smoker, a heroin junkie, and the leader of a small-time motorcycle gang. And now I'll quote here from a web page dedicated to the history of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. As a young man, John Griggs liked to fight, and he was good at it. Short, dark, wiry, and mean, his flair with a punch brought him to the leadership of a teenage gang called the Blue Jackets. These were the guys who parents worried about just before they started worrying about the hippies. These guys were greasers, toughs, and hoods. They trolled through town looking for trouble. They honed their skills by kicking cigarettes out of each other's mouths. John and the Blue Jackets liked to jump the fence at Disneyland, track down the guys from the San Fernando Valley, and beat their asses. Okay, so that's a great picture of Johnny to start with. Here's another paragraph I'll read. Quote, Soon John left the Blue Jackets for the Street Sweepers, an Anaheim car club whose members waged drug-fueled drag races while wearing German army helmets. They'd throw water balloons or eggs at people on the street. 
Somehow in all this, John managed to get a job with the Anaheim Parks and Recreation as a trash collector. But he wasn't the kind of guy who separated work from play. He smoked enormous joints while driving around town on trash details, occasionally rolling down the window to yell, Hello, I love you, at passing strangers. Okay, so from the start, it does not sound like Johnny Griggs is your typical hippie psychedelic community leader. He's a punk, he's a thug, he's a greaser, he's a tough guy. He probably thinks he's like James Dean or Marlon Brando from Rebel Without a Cause or The Wild One. And then we have Johnny Griggs's origin story, which is also legendary because the details of this are so obscure it is impossible to tell if this is a true story or not. But this is how the legend goes. Sometime in the mid-60s, around maybe 1965 or so, Johnny Griggs heard that a big-shot Hollywood producer had a huge stash of this new drug called LSD. So he and his motorcycle gang crashed a party at the producer's house to steal the drug at gunpoint. Now, the legend never says who this Hollywood producer was. It's not in the history books. It's not in any of the history of Johnny Griggs or the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. We don't know who this producer was. I'm guessing that maybe it was Roger Corman or someone adjacent to Roger Corman in the Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda Easy Rider circle of influence. Now, the legend goes on to say that Johnny and his boys took the acid and then wound up eating a lot of acid and had numerous breakthrough transpersonal experiences. According to the legend, Johnny said, this is it. This is it. This is what we're doing from now on. And after one or two trips on acid, the entire motorcycle gang denounced their criminal ways, threw away their guns and knives, and decided to dedicate themselves right then and there to a new way of spiritual living. Instead of being motorcycle punks and greasers and wannabe gangsters, they decided to become dropout surfers and full-time acid heads. They grew their hair long and went barefoot and walked around with no shirt on the street of Laguna Beach. They literally took over Laguna Beach and turned it into a retreat for a new breed of West Coast spiritual seekers. And now I'm going to read another paragraph here. Um, I'm not sure who wrote this paragraph, but it is on the Brotherhood of Eternal Love website. The paragraph reads like this. The real hippie messiah was Johnny Griggs, who created a Wild West scene free from police intervention in a canyon near Laguna Beach, a community where every third house was used to stash kilos of hash when necessary. Griggs had been a typical juvenile delinquent into cars, motorcycles, and guns, but transformed after one acid trip, throwing away his revolver and preaching universal love from that point on. He had a heart chakra that could bowl you over, and created the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, something Tim Leary had actually recommended people do so that emerging religions could become legally recognized. The Brotherhood was very spiritual and very successful financially, although many members took a dislike to Leary when he began hitting on their wives behind their backs. Leary was a martini-drinking meat-eater, while the brothers were non-drinking vegetarians and deep into the worship of Mother Earth. It was Leary who copped their style, not the other way around. Suddenly, Leary was wearing silk robes with a flower behind his ear. Yeah, he even copped the flower from Griggs, who always wore a flower behind his ear. Okay, so that's the origin story. Johnny Griggs, juvenile delinquent, 
steals acid from a movie producer at gunpoint, drops acid, and after a single acid trip, decides that he is going to become the spiritual leader for a new movement. And that movement's spiritual values included vegetarianism, earth worship, meditation, and an adoption of Hindu spiritual concepts like kundalini and chakras and so on. They had such a big community there in Laguna Beach that they also opened up the first head shop, which was called the Mystical Arts Bookstore and Emporium. And they sold books and incense and tie-dyed tapestries, little spiritual figurines, kind of hippie jewelry, all the stuff that you would find in a, a hippie head shop back in the day. And this is where I want to emphasize that Johnny Griggs and every member of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love will tell you to this day that they were on a spiritual mission, taking LSD, moving to Laguna Beach, forming this hippie community, opening the first head shop. This was all part of a spiritual movement. And they believed that they were on a spiritual mission. And they used concepts like karma to rationalize everything that they did. Because if they were on a spiritual mission to bring more good karma into the universe, then anything that they did in pursuit of that mission was suddenly worthwhile. It was suddenly fine. Because it was a spiritual means to an end. And I'll give you an example. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love did not have a lot of money to make acid. Their plan was to produce acid themselves that they could use to turn on the entire West Coast and then eventually turn on the entire world so that they could bring about this global change in spiritual consciousness and enter a new era of enlightenment, maybe the age of Aquarius or something like that. They truly believed that if they just produced enough acid to get everybody in the world high, that there would be an end to all war, hate and violence would disappear, people would start sharing and loving each other, and the world would become an acid-drenched utopia. This was the mission of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And to support that mission, to raise money to support that mission, they decided they were going to smuggle hashish from Afghanistan back to Orange County. So even though Johnny Griggs had this transformation and turned from this punk motorcycle gang greaser into this kind of hippie, charismatic guru, he was still at heart a criminal. Even though he was couching everything that he did and everything the Brotherhood of the Eternal Love did in the guise of this spiritual movement, he was a criminal. The Brotherhood smuggled hundreds of pounds of hashish into the country and produced more acid than maybe any other psychedelic drug syndicate in history. Because of the hashish, because of the acid, because of the bookstore, they became the leaders and the center of this Laguna Beach movement. And they were bonded by drugs in this dizzying new world of kinship, spiritual enlightenment, and the freedom that only comes from having unlimited power, unlimited karma, and unlimited money. Within a few years, they were more than heroes. They were more than legends. They were a cult. They were a social movement. They were the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And they had the power of Nicholas Sand and Tim Scully's orange sunshine behind them. Now, you can watch the Orange Sunshine documentary. This is all covered in that video. And I'll just give you a couple 
key talking points from that documentary that I think are worth repeating. When Johnny Griggs and the Brotherhood got their first big supply of LSD, they began taking it 24-7 every day for nine months. They were high on acid every day for nine months. And then eventually, Johnny and some of the other members of the Brotherhood decide to dose Johnny's wife by putting LSD in her orange juice to bring her into the fold. So Diane Griggs, Johnny's wife, talks about being slipped acid in her orange juice. And during that trip, she decided she wanted to drop out and leave her house in Fountain Valley. Okay, this was, this was part of her spiritual awakening, was Johnny Griggs dosing her without her knowledge in order to brainwash her into his cult. And I just wrote down some quotes from some of the interviews with the surviving members of the Brotherhood. They use words like, we were leading a psycho-spiritual revolution. The goal of the group is spiritual enlightenment. We wanted to make as much acid as we could and get it to as many people as we can. We just started off as a group of guys seeking spiritual enlightenment. So, from the inside of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, it looked like a religion or a cult or a spiritual movement, or a community organization, something that was happening there. A subculture was emerging in Laguna Beach, fueled by the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and LSD. But to the outside, they were a criminal organization. They were the hippie mafia. They were drug smugglers. They were drug dealers. I'm sure they never reported any of their drug income, so they were tax frauds. And eventually, heat from law enforcement came down on them. Apparently, the chief of police in Laguna Beach started harassing the Brotherhood and keeping them under surveillance and putting pressure on them and raiding houses to find their stash of drugs. And eventually, the heat became so heavy that the Brotherhood had to leave Laguna Beach. And this is where the story gets a little bit tricky. Because by this time, Tim Leary has entered the scene. Apparently, Johnny Griggs took a pilgrimage to Millbrook and had a big powwow with Tim Leary, where they sort of mapped out this whole idea for the spiritual movement and the spiritual awakening, where they would use acid to turn on the world and create this new enlightened culture. And when Tim Leary was thrown out of his house in Millbrook, he moved to Orange County, broke, to go and live with Johnny Griggs and the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. And they adopted Tim Leary as their spiritual advisor and guru. And by this point, Tim Leary had decided he was going to run for governor of California so that he could make drugs legal, or one part of his platform. And he was doing a good job of making himself a big figure in the media. In fact, at one point, Richard Nixon famously called Tim Leary the most dangerous man in America and warned parents to tell their kids to stay away from Timothy Leary and don't listen to Timothy Leary because he's the Pied Piper of acid, leading them off a cliff. So when they left Laguna Beach, a bunch of the Brotherhood wanted to move to Hawaii. They wanted to get off the beaten path and move to a very remote part of Maui where they could make acid and grow pot and live off the land and have this kind of primal utopia where the Brotherhood could retreat to. Leary didn't want to leave California. He wanted to be in the limelight, he wanted to have access to the press, and he wanted to run for governor. So a big chunk of the Brotherhood picked up and bought a piece of land in Idlewild, California, 
which is about an hour or so inland from Orange County, out in the high desert. They decided they were going to go back to the land and live in teepees, like a prehistoric tribal culture, and grow their own vegetables and live off the land and have a pure existence away from the influence of modern society. And it's here that I really want to begin my story, this Idlewild Ranch retreat where Johnny Griggs and Tim Leary and a bunch of people from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love set up their little utopia. Now, before I get to this next part of the story, I just want to take a break and say that many people will say that the Brotherhood of Eternal Love was legendary. And I can hardly disagree with this. They are legendary, and they should all be celebrated for their legendary status. Now, some people will go beyond this and say that Johnny Griggs is a hero, a forgotten legend in the mythic creation story of the West Coast psychedelic tribe. They'll say Johnny Griggs was a hippie messiah, that he was a prophet of love. But here's what I will say. From my perspective, Johnny Griggs was an asshole. And Johnny Griggs was a fool. And the only thing Johnny Griggs had going for him was some charisma and a power trip that made him crave the cultish devotion and worship of the people around him. And you can see all of this narcissistic self-importance in his seamless evolution from petty motorcycle gang leader to the grandiose spiritual cult leader to the unlikely captain of an international drug cartel, all within the span of a couple of years. Now, some say that Johnny Griggs was the reason that Nixon got elected, because Johnny Griggs almost single-handedly created the hippie menace that Nixon used to frighten the public into putting him into power. Now, why do I call Johnny Griggs a fool? Some of you may be saying, James, that seems unfair. Johnny Griggs turned his life around and decided to take a spiritual path once he tried LSD for the first time. He became a transformational figure in our shared cultural history. And I say, okay, that's fine, but that doesn't make him any less of a fool. And here is why I say this. Johnny Griggs had no fucking idea what he was doing. Before he took LSD, he was a self-proclaimed atheist and junkie. He was almost functionally illiterate. He had no idea how LSD worked and had no idea what kind of effect LSD would have on society. Johnny Griggs was ignorant of chemistry, history, pharmacology, and even spirituality. When he took LSD and embraced a new spiritual identity, he had only the thinnest and most superficial knowledge of what spirituality even is. He rejected Christianity, and he adopted imported forms of New Age meditation from people like Ram Das. And he convinced himself that he was a New Age messiah, just because he knew how to sit in a lotus position and say, Om. This was the extent of Johnny Griggs's spiritual training. He was taught how to sit in a lotus position and say, Om. Now, I don't know how much Johnny Griggs actually believed in the spiritual power of LSD, or how much of that was marketing to expand the brand of LSD and the Brotherhood, but from what I can tell, I tend to believe that Johnny Griggs was all in, 
and he actually believed all of his own bullshit, and that he really believed that he was at the tip of the spear in a breaking psychedelic revolution. And the power of Johnny Griggs devotion to this ideal that LSD could save the world was infectious. This idea was the core and the heart and the strength of everything the Brotherhood stood for. Because even though the Brotherhood may have been involved in criminal activities and drug smuggling and some drug orgies and one particular Laguna Beach festival where postcards with hits of acid were airdropped over the crowd, this was always because they were really, really interested in, like, world peace, man. They weren't in it for the money. They weren't in it for the fame. They weren't in it for the women. They were trying to give the globe, like, a total spiritual awakening. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for the last few episodes, you will recognize this as a kind of spiritual mania or a savior syndrome. I equate this with a kind of delusional psychosis. But none of the people in the Brotherhood of Eternal Love thought Johnny was crazy. Everybody thought that Johnny Griggs was a messiah. But he wasn't a messiah. He was a fool. He didn't know how to do any of the things that he set out to do. He didn't know how to be a petty criminal. He didn't know how to be a cult leader. He didn't know how to be a drug kingpin, and he certainly did not know how to be a spiritual leader. He was a sloppy, disorganized mess. Probably because he was high on acid most of the time. And like I've said before, these psychedelic spiritual movements always have big plans of expanding outward and taking over the world, but they always wind up retreating into primitivism. Johnny Griggs and the Brotherhood made the decision to buy their ranch in Idlewild, and instead of living in cabins, they all lived in teepees, like Stone Age tribes. Oh wait, they all lived in teepees except for Tim Leary, who got to live in the little cabin on the ranch. But everyone else, including Johnny Griggs and his wife and his three children, they got to live in Stone Age conditions in the teepees on the land that they owned. Now I ask you, does this paradigm of dropping out of modern society to live in the most primitive of Stone Age conditions sound familiar? Leary pulled this exact same trick at Millbrook, where he was living in an ornate mansion and decided to move out of the mansion and live in a teepee on the lush grounds of the estate. And coincidentally, at the same time that the Brotherhood of Eternal Love decided to move into a desolate ranch in the Central Valley of California, this is exactly what Charles Manson did around the same time with the Manson family. Now I wonder where he got that idea. I guess great minds think alike. So picture this. And this is really where I want you to follow along and do this mental exercise with me. Because this is the part where I feel the most cognitive dissonance between the proclaimed goals of psychedelic culture and the actual behaviors of psychedelic culture. The proclaimed goals of psychedelic culture are spiritual awakening, transpersonal awareness, enlightenment, and an evolution in cultural progress. Those are the proclaimed goals, very, very lofty spiritual goals. But the actual observed outcomes of psychedelic culture 
are the emergence of cultish gurus, a total loss of personal awareness, chronic self-delusion, and a retreat into the most primitive instincts of human culture. Johnny Griggs, the leader of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, spiritual warrior, top-level Laguna Beach, LSD, surfer, Jedi master, drug kingpin, with all the money in the world, decides that living in a teepee with his wife and three infant children in the central desert of California, high on acid, is the correct way to live. This is the end game. This is the goal that Johnny Griggs's entire life was moving towards. Living in a teepee in the middle of the central desert in California. And I have to ask myself, really, is this the vision? This is the future Johnny Griggs really wanted for himself? This is the endpoint of the spiritual revolution? Everyone living in teepees and subsistence farming and staying high on LSD for the rest of their lives? Really? This is the spiritual future you envisioned for your wife and three children and all the fools that sat on the beach in lotus position chanting Om for hours at a time claiming to be part of some fucked up brotherhood because that was somebody's hollow and misguided version of Hindu spirituality. I mean, come on. Fuck this guy. Fuck Johnny Griggs. Please excuse me if I say fuck Johnny Griggs and fuck the Brotherhood of Eternal Love for having their heads so far up their own asses they couldn't even recognize when they were neck deep in their own shit. And here's the final proof that I am correct. At some point on the ranch there in Idlewild, during one of their LSD parties, a young girl, a teenager, a 17-year-old girl, while high on acid, wound up face down in a pond on the property and drowned. Now, I don't know who this woman was. All I could find in the reports from this time is that this person was the daughter of a friend of Timothy Leary, who was staying at the property overnight or for a couple of nights for this party. And somehow or another, high on LSD, stumbling around in the dark out there in the central valley the central desert of california this young girl winds up face down in the pond and drowns to death now of course this becomes a scandal and before long the police and the sheriff's department are up raiding the ranch and taking timothy leary into custody and taking other members of the brotherhood into custody and there's actually video of this event that you can see in the Orange Sunshine documentary. And there's one image that really stood out to me in this video of this bust, is when the cops pull Tim Leary out of that cabin with his hands cuffed behind his back. He's laughing and has the biggest smile on his face as if he has just stumbled into somebody throwing him a surprise birthday party. That's how gleefully fucked up he looks. He looks like there, everyone is there to give Tim Leary a big surprise party. He's laughing and smiling so hard, he thinks that being arrested and being pulled out of his little cabin is the funniest fucking thing that's ever happened to him in his life. 
keep in mind that a young girl had just died weeks earlier on the property. And yet Tim Leary still thinks this moment where he's being put in cuffs by the pigs is the fucking funniest thing that's ever happened to him. And when I looked at Tim Leary's face being dragged out of that cabin, laughing and smiling and whooping only like Tim Leary could, I realized that at this point in his career, in his, in his arc through LSD experimentation, Tim Leary had totally lost his mind. He had totally lost it at this point. And I'm basing that solely on the look on his face in this video clip, because I know insane. I've seen insane. And Tim Leary in this clip is fucking insane. Now, there are stories of the day of this bust, which say that while Tim Leary and other members of the Brotherhood are being rounded up and arrested on the ranch in Idlewild, Johnny Griggs runs and hides and watches it all go down from a vantage point somewhere else on the ranch. This is the spiritual leader. This is, this is the guy who everybody is, is taking their orders from. While this whole thing goes down, he runs and hides and watches from a distance. And now the next part of the story is a little jumbled for me. I've been through the documentary in the book and, and read accounts online, and I'm still trying to piece together exactly what happens in the timeline. But eventually, all the people arrested in that raid are let out on bail, or maybe a few of them are kept in jail. But Tim Leary and most of the Brotherhood comes back to the Idlewild Ranch, and they recoup and figure out what their next move is going to be. And during this time, Tim Leary, for some reason, drives to the bottom of the hill where the Idlewild Ranch is and sits in his car and smokes a joint. And the sheriff or the chief of police or somebody in the area sees him and says, oh my God, is that Tim Leary? And this is where Tim Leary is busted for having marijuana in the car and put in jail. And this is when the Brotherhood of Eternal Love decides that they're going to break Timothy Leary out of jail and they get the weather underground involved. And that's an entirely different story that I'm not gonna get into here. But you can see it was a very tumultuous time for the Brotherhood, a very tumultuous year for America. But what happened next just proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, to me at least, that these guys were all fucking fools. So I'm skipping ahead to the late summer of 1969, and I'm going to read here directly from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love's webpage history, because I want to get this right. Quote, On the night of August 3rd, 1969, Johnny Griggs ate psilocybin crystals that a Brotherhood connection had brought back from Switzerland. In true Brotherhood fashion, he ate as much of the crystals as he could, then went into his teepee to await the results. After 20 minutes, he shouted a warning to the others, Don't take the psilocybin! It's a complete overdose! A brother checked in on him a half hour later to find that John was in bad, bad shape. Still, he refused to go to the hospital. I don't want to go and be busted for being loaded, he said. It's just between me and God. And that's the way it's going to be. Johnny Griggs grew worse and worse, and by the early morning hours, his wife insisted 
that someone take him to the hospital. John just barely made it. He entered the emergency room in the arms of one of his brothers still alive, but the doors had not fully shut behind them when his body shivered and he died. End quote. So, there you have it. Johnny Griggs, the hippie messiah, the leader of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. The reason that you've never heard of him is because he died of an overdose on psilocybin while living as a fugitive in a teepee on a ranch in the central desert of California. That's where he ended up. Overdosing on psilocybin in a teepee out in the middle of the desert. In the presence of his wife and three infant children. And here's another interesting fact. As Johnny Griggs lay dying in his teepee that night on August 3rd, 1969, the rest of the brothers sat around talking to themselves about the big decision that they had to make. And the big decision was not whether or not to take Johnny to the hospital. The big decision was whether or not to try that psilocybin or to take acid instead just to be safe. And they decided to leave the psilocybin alone, like Johnny said. And they would drop acid that night. So as Johnny Griggs lay dying in his teepee, refusing to let anyone take him to the hospital, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, perhaps some of the most enlightened individuals on the planet in their own mind, they decided that the proper course of action was to let Johnny writhe alone in the teepee all night while they went and had a great time on acid. And it was only in the morning that someone came back around with enough sense, his wife, to realize that he was in serious trouble and he needed medical help. But by then, of course, it was too late. They were out in the middle of the fucking desert and had to drive, I don't know, 20 minutes, 40 minutes to the hospital to get him there. And according to legend, he was still alive when they rolled him into the hospital. But even before the doors had fully shut behind him, his body shivered and he died. Now, I don't know what is the worst part of this story. Is it that Johnny Griggs was a fucking fool who thought he could use acid to turn on the world and create a spiritual revolution? I don't know. That's pretty bad. That's, I find that to be completely disgusting because he is the template for all these other fucking messianic fools who drop acid and think that they're going to create a spiritual awakening that causes the world to become enlightened. Number one, that's horrible. That's fucking stupid and it disgusts me. The second thing here, Johnny Griggs dosed his own wife by putting LSD in her orange juice so that he could initiate her into the brotherhood and get her to come along with all their irresponsible bullshit. That fucking disgusts me. And that makes me believe that Johnny Griggs was a fucking sociopath. 
or so high on acid he had no idea that what he was doing was a criminal violation of rights and unfair, an unfair thing to do to his wife, even though in retrospect she says that it was a very spiritual experience that opened her eyes to a new way of seeing the world. The fact that they were criminals and they started a counterculture and this hippie revolution, I don't have a problem with that. To me, that's all social mechanic, that's economic mechanics. They were hustling to make their vision come true, and they were hoping that it would come true, and they believed that it would come true, and their short-sightedness and their ignorance to true spirituality made this an impossible task for them. But, you know, I give them credit for trying. But then we have the tragedies, and we have the interpersonal bullshit. We have Tim Leary and his crew coming in, trying to seduce all the women in the group. You have the reckless distribution of acid at the Altamont concert, which caused deaths and violence and chaos when the Hells Angels got involved, mixing speed and acid, not a good idea. And then you have the tragic death of the 17-year-old girl at the Idlewild Ranch, a civilian casualty, collateral damage of their fucking insane scheme to create a psycho-spiritual awakening around the globe. And then you have the tragic way that Johnny Griggs refused to go to the hospital. And none of his enlightened friends, none of these enlightened spiritual masters understood the kind of danger he was in. They just assumed if Johnny says it's between him and God, that's the way it's going to be. Truly enlightened. And then you have Johnny Griggs lying alone on the floor of that TP, out of his mind on psilocybin, dying, writhing in the torture chamber for hours while his wife and his buddies are out partying high on acid all night. I don't know which one of the elements of this story is more horrible. They're all horrible. But the one that really gets me is the fact that in hindsight, Johnny Griggs is still considered to be a hero, a hero of psychedelic culture and a spiritual leader, the hippie messiah of the psychedelic movement of the late 1960s. This asshole, this fucking sociopathic criminal jerk off who doesn't know shit about shit decides he's going to be the spiritual leader that's going to wake up the entire world with acid. Come on, fuck this guy. He is not a hero. He is not a guru. He is not a spiritual leader. He's a fucking criminal who doesn't know shit. And the fact that he's a fool and an idiot that doesn't know shit is obvious in hindsight. When you look back on this entire story, obvious he was always a fool who was in over his head who thought he had all the angles and knew what was going on and in the end he leaves a few dead bodies in his wake maybe more than a few maybe a lot of dead bodies in his wake and he himself dies on an overdose of drugs now i often hear people say that psilocybin is the safest drug in the world 
or that magic mushrooms is the safest psychoactive drug in the world. But I've known plenty of people who've had horrible, horrible experiences with psilocybin. Suicides, attempted suicides, psychotic breaks that wound up in the emergency room, visions of the end of the world, visions of the end of time that cause post-traumatic stress disorder and obsessive ideation. And yes, Johnny Griggs took a chemical synthesis of psilocybin. Or maybe it was psilocin. And this is the problem with this story, is we're not exactly sure what Johnny Griggs took. According to one member of the Brotherhood, they later took the same psilocybin just to see what it was, and they claim that it was actually plain old psilocybin. There was nothing tainted about it. I believe in one instance Tim Leary claimed that that psilocybin was tainted with strychnine. And this whole nonsense about psychedelics being tainted with strychnine started somewhere in this rumor around Johnny Griggs's death. And I've had people ask me, is it possible for someone to overdose on psilocybin? And I've had people tell me there's not one reported case of anybody ever overdosing or dying from taking psilocybin. And I always have to remind them, well, what about Johnny Griggs? And they say, who? And I say, exactly. So when I hear people say these things, and when I hear people say that psilocybin is the safest drug in the world, I just have to think to myself and remember people like Jared Wyatt, who took mushrooms, just wanting to have a good time with his friends, winds up mutilating and murdering his friend. And I think about Johnny Griggs, the hippie messiah, who went all in on taking psychedelics as a path to spiritual enlightenment, who winds up dying alone in a teepee in the middle of the desert while his friends are partying on acid right outside. These people never expected to get rolled like that. They were operating under the assumption that it was safe and harmless and fun and everything would be fine. But little did they know that their planned evening of fun gave them a one-way ticket to the torture chamber. Although what happened to Johnny Griggs and the Brotherhood of Eternal Love was tragic, Johnny may have gotten out of the scene at just the right time, because there at the end of 1969, after Johnny Griggs died, the entire psychedelic movement was thrown into chaos. It was at the end of the summer in 1969 when the Manson family murders happened and shocked a nation and literally had every God-fearing person in the United States worried that dirty, crazy hippies high on acid were coming to kill them in their homes. Okay, imagine that. Here you have the hippies, a cult of peace-loving, acid-dropping, vegetarian, meditating, karma-worshipping, long-haired bohemians, thinking they could turn the world onto acid and make it a better place. 
purely with the belief that LSD was a spiritual drug that induced spiritual enlightenment for everyone who takes it. And I think we can see in hindsight now that this presumption, this assumption, that LSD is an inherently spiritual drug is false. The idea that LSD leads to some kind of spiritual enlightenment or spiritual awakening is false. I believe if you went back in time and tried to convince Johnny Griggs that unleashing LSD on Southern California would lead to a string of horrific murders and mutilations organized and carried out by people high on LSD, delusional, possibly undergoing a psychotic break. I don't think Johnny Griggs would listen to you. When Johnny Griggs was giving everybody acid in Laguna Beach and meditating on the beach and running his little show at the Mystic Arts Emporium, I don't think he could be convinced that there was any possible way that this LSD gambit was going to go sideways. I think he would have said, I was a violent criminal before I found LSD. And now that I've taken LSD, my eyes are opened and I'm enlightened. And I have a new spiritual understanding of the world. And I'm on a spiritual mission to free everybody's mind. That's what he would say. And he would probably also say something like, if people get murdered or mutilated and LSD is somehow involved, well, that's not LSD's fault. That's just karma. Now, I play that little hypothetical vignette for you because there's a few more stories that I want to share. Some short stories. Some stories that are probably forgotten by today's psychedelic community. But they're out there. There are stories for days. But I'm going to focus on three particular stories here in the wake of Johnny Griggs and the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and the Manson family and the psychedelic revolution in Orange County in Southern California at the end of the 60s. Because it's interesting what you'll find when you Google LSD, mutilation, Satan, and cutting a heart out. LSD, devil, Satan, heart mutilation, heart removed. You may be surprised that the list does not come up empty. There are multiple cases of this particular crime. LSD-fueled mutilation. Satanic LSD-fueled mutilation. And I've picked the top three stories here for you because I think they're worth repeating. And if you haven't heard them, I urge you to go online and check them out because... They are almost too hard to believe. The first one is about Stephen Hurd, member of a group called the Sons of Satan, a self-proclaimed Satanist who ate a woman's heart while high on LSD. I'm going to read to you now from an article from the Orange County Register. And as with this case, all of the cases that I'm going to be talking about here can be found on murderpedia.org. And I'm going to read to you a little bit about Stephen Hurd here now. Stephen Hurd was the leader of a small band of Satan worshippers who traveled together in the summer of 1970, committing random acts of violence. The group confronted Carlin, their first victim, during his graveyard shift at the Santa Ana gas station on June 2, 1970. Hurd and follower Arthur Moose Hulse 
forced the newlywed into a station restroom where they hacked him to death with a Boy Scout hatchet. Hulse later licked the blood off the hatchet, Heard claimed. Okay, so that was their first murder, or maybe not their first, but the first one that they're charged with, hacking a man to death in the middle of the night in a gas station bathroom with a Boy Scout hatchet. Now the story continues. The day after Carlin was slaughtered, the group of Satanists hijacked a station wagon driven by Brown, their second victim, when she exited the I-5 freeway at Sand Canyon. According to the testimony of one of the accomplices, Brown was forced into an orange grove in Irvine where she begged for her life and asked if she was going to die. Stephen Hurd answered her by stabbing her more than 20 times. The group buried Brown's body in a shallow grave near El Cariso on that Ortega Highway. Stephen Hurd told state psychiatrists that he had returned to the gravesite several days later, dug up the body, ripped out Brown's heart, and ate it. He said it tasted like chicken. Okay, now, here's the important part. It took five years of psychiatric treatment before Hurd was declared sane enough to stand trial. After they captured this guy, it took five years of psychiatric treatment before Hurd was declared sane enough to stand trial. His attorney portrayed Hurd as a helpless pawn of delusions that Satan was forcing him to kill, and his addiction to secondol and LSD had scrambled his brain. Now, I know some of you may have heard this old rumor that there was a criminal defense, a legal defense that you could use that said something like, if you've taken LSD more than nine times, you can be declared clinically insane. Now, that itself is a myth. There is no law or statute that says if you've taken LSD nine times, you're clinically insane. But this was one of those cases where that was argued. This was one of those cases where they argued that Stephen Hurd could not be held responsible for his actions because he had taken so much LSD he was clinically insane. And, oh yes, the devil was the one that made him do it. Now, it's hard for me to overstate how big a thing Satanism was in the 70s, especially the early 70s. Anton LaVey founded the first satanic church, wrote the satanic Bible, and Satanism became popular. It was just another thread of the new age, but a dark thread and one that sucked in a lot of people. There were devil baby movies like The Exorcist and The Omen and Rosemary's Baby. There were songs about the devil like Hotel California and Satan Worship. There was a national outrage. There was a mass hysteria about rumors that cults of Satanists were kidnapping babies and eating them, and that pregnant women were being kidnapped and forced to bear children that were then sacrificed in satanic rituals. The FBI was investigating satanic groups across the country. It was a big deal. And even though Anton LaVey did not espouse drug use in the satanic Bible, I think that there is a very easy causal relationship to draw between the massive amounts of LSD that people were taking in Southern California and the large amount of Satan worshipers that came out during that same time. People were legitimately practicing black magic. It was a thing. 
Now here's my second story, also from the summer of 1970. This is the story about the Yellowstone Killers, Stanley Dean Baker and Harry Stroop. These two were arrested after a traffic accident near Salinas, California on July 15th. They had been speeding along an isolated road 20 miles south of Big Sur in Schlosser's Yellow Opal when he crashed his car. Upon his arrest, Baker made a startling statement. I have a problem, he said. I am a cannibal. He then reached into his pocket and pulled out a few small white objects, finger bones. Baker said they came from a victim's hands. He had hacked them off the victim and put them in his pocket in case he said he wanted a snack. Along with the severed digits, Baker had a copy of the Satanic Bible in his pocket. Baker freely confessed to what had happened. He told police that he and Stroop had been dropping acid and hitchhiking on July 11th in 1970, when their victim pulled over to offer a ride. Then they stopped to camp for the night. Sometime after dark, a thunderstorm set Baker's LSD-addled brain into a demonic trance. He could not help himself. Satan told him to stab Schlosser, the man who had picked him up hitchhiking, and cut out his heart. I ate it raw, he later boasted. Baker pleaded guilty to Schlosser's murder and was given a life sentence. He was actually paroled in 1985, 15 years later, for good behavior. So here we have another example of a man high on LSD told by the devil to cut a man's heart out and eat it. And now here's a little blurb from Murderpedia.org about Stanley Dean Baker. Baker was branded a hippie Satanist by the popular press because he had both a recipe for LSD and a copy of the Satanic Bible in his possession when he was arrested. Baker would later tell both law enforcement officials and fellow inmates that he had participated in a blood-drinking cult in Wyoming, and he'd later confessed that his crimes were actually the result of his drug use and had nothing to do with any involvement with Satanism. Now, this later admission may have been part of his parole hearing. He uh, apparently cleaned up and disavowed Satanism while in jail, which allowed him to be paroled early. He later blamed all of that stuff, all of that Satanist stuff, the blood drinking stuff, the killing and the stabbing and the mutilating and the eating the heart stuff. That wasn't actually the devil. It was acid. He basically had to tell the parole board, I was high on acid. I was taking a lot of acid. Maybe I was mentally insane at the time. I don't know what was going on. But I renounce Satan now, so I'm better. Now, it's unusual that Stanley Dean Baker was paroled after 15 years with a life sentence. I'm not exactly sure how that happened, especially since he admitted to cutting out someone's heart and eating it. But maybe he did get better. Maybe once he stopped taking the acid, he just figured out that he was crazy for a while. Who knows? In contrast, Stephen Hurd from the Sons of Satan died in jail at the age of 55. He spent his whole life in jail. And perhaps rightly so. And this brings us to our last story. Maybe not the worst story in this episode, but by now, this story should be deadly 
familiar. This is the story about Ricky Casso, the Acid King. That was literally his nickname, the Acid King. I guess because he sold acid, or he always had acid, or he was always looking for acid. This story is from 1984, and it's entitled, A Raven Asked Him to Kill. Ricky Casso was 17 years old when he dropped out of school and ran away from home. His daily routine consisted of practicing satanic rituals, taking LSD, and sleeping in cars around Northport, on the outskirts of New York. He soon became a member of a teenage satanic group called the Knights of the Black Circle. A heavy metal fan, he made a hobby of stealing bones from cemeteries. One night, Ricky Casso and his good friend, Gary Lowers, got into an argument over the fact that Lowers stole 10 bags of angel dust from Casso. Two months later, Casso told Lowers that he wanted to clear the air and cancel the debt. To make up, he invited Lowers to spend the night in the Aztake woods with two more friends of theirs, Albert Quinoas and Jimmy Troiano. The four kids built a small camp, lit a fire, and took some mescaline. Almost out of nowhere, Casso began hitting Lowers and ended up stabbing him 30 times and tearing out his eyes. It is said that he tortured his victim for four hours. Ricky repeatedly instructed his friend to scream that he loved Satan, but Lowers kept responding that he loved his mother, which apparently only irritated Casso more. According to Casso, it was Satan himself who had appeared in the form of a raven who ordered him to perform this human sacrifice. On the 4th of July, 1984, investigators discovered the corpse of Lowers decomposing. There was just enough skin left on his fingers for them to be able to take his fingerprints and identify him. Less than 24 hours later, Casso was arrested for the murder. He was never sentenced because he hung himself in his cell one day after his arrest. And that's the story of Ricky Casso, the Acid King. Now, as a parting shot for this episode, I would like you all to do me a favor if you've come this far. I'd like you to pause the recording now and quickly do an image search for Ricky Casso. K-A-S-S-O. Ricky Casso. I want you to Google Ricky Casso and look at that picture. Seriously, you need to do it. His photo rivals those of Rasputin and Charles Manson as perhaps the most psychotic fuck ever photographed in history. You really need to see Ricky Casso, the Acid King. Google it. And look at that guy. He's probably wearing an ACDC t-shirt. And now think about this. For every one Tim Leary, or every one Johnny Griggs, who takes LSD and decides that this is the miracle that the world needs. This is the spiritual awakening and the enlightenment that the world has been waiting for. For every guru who finds acid and uses it to preach love. For every one of those guys, 
there's a Ricky Casso. There's a Charles Manson. There's a Stephen Hurd. There's a Stanley Dean Baker. And for every person who preaches that LSD is a gateway to enlightenment, there is someone else who believes that LSD is a gateway to demonic possession and perhaps the summoning of Satan himself. And now think about that. On one end of this movement, the beginning end, you have Johnny Griggs thinking that all he has to do is flood the world with LSD and everyone's going to hop aboard the peace train and it's going to be utopia from here on out. And then we flash forward to a few years later when the children of this new satanic movement get their hands on LSD. They have a very different vision of the world and they're led in a very different direction. A direction that may have startled and horrified Johnny Griggs if he ever saw it coming. But you know what? That's the thing about messiahs and delusional megalomaniacs is that they never see it coming. They are too blinded by their own bullshit to ever see something like this coming. Yeah.